that's what we have for announcements. We're going to turn now to Revelation. We're studying the book of Revelation together as a church. We're in Revelation chapter 8, just looking at the first five verses. This is the word of the Lord. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven uh, trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Our great Father in heaven, you are the the creator of heaven and earth. You are so deeply wise and beautiful beyond our comprehension. Yet you are the deep longing of our souls uh, to know you and to be known by you. And Lord, uh, we thank you for the book of Revelation and its mysterious words that speak with such power to us. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would now come and um, uh, give us ears to hear. That you would open the ears of the deaf. That you would give sight to the blind. You'd raise up new life in us. And so, Lord, we long to hear from you and, and pray that you would be our teacher now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this summer we've been uh, studying the book of Revelation. And Revelation is uh, basically Jesus' book of the Bible. If you, uh, you know, as you read through the Bible, you find out, well, the first five books are the books of Moses. And then you got books like Isaiah. That's Isaiah's book. And then you got Jeremiah. And then you got Matthew and John. And the Apostle Paul, you know, wrote all these letters to the churches. So there's all these people uh, that have written God's word throughout history. And the book of Hebrews says that. In former times, God spoke to us through the prophets. But in the last days, he has spoken to us through his son. The final word is from God's own son, Jesus. And that's what the book of Revelation is. It's the last book of the Bible. It's the final definitive word. And it's the book that came from the son of God himself. And for that reason, that's why Revelation is the most incredible literary masterpiece ever written. And and we know that because... It's been studied so in-depth for centuries. And even within this generation, there are new discoveries about the patterns and the numbers and uh, the references to the Old Testament, the way it uses imagery to tie things together. And yet it's still this riddle that people are trying to unlock and say, what does it mean? And we, we get a sense of, of God's sovereignty over history and God's power and wisdom and holiness and his care for his people. There are all these themes. And yet for century after century, there are new mysteries that are unlocked in it. And so it's an incredible masterpiece. And yet, even though scholars for history have studied it, I remember as a new Christian reading Revelation, and I probably didn't understand a lot of what it was talking about, and yet it was incredibly powerful. It's, it, 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 the images 
changed me and led me to worship, led me to, to see the sovereignty of Christ and his goodness and his wisdom and his power. And so uh, Revelation is, uh, is truly a masterpiece. And one of the main patterns that you see through the book of Revelation are there these cycles of seven. And uh, seven in the Bible is the number of completion, but even more than that, it's the number of creation. You know, God made the world in seven days. And so, you know, at the beginning of the Bible, there's the seven days of creation. At the end of the Bible, there are these cycles of seven. And uh, that's because Revelation is about the ending of an old world and the beginning of a new creation where Jesus is king. And uh, if you're with us last summer, the first cycle of seven were Jesus were these seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven uh, churches in the first century. And then uh, in this first part of the summer, we've been uh, looking at the seven seals when the Lamb of God opens the scroll and there are seven seals that he opens and, and there's all this, uh, these events that happen in the earth related to the seven seals. Next week, we're going to look at the seven trumpets. There's new cycles. There's seven letters and the seven seals and then there's the seven trumpets. And the next summer, when we come back to Revelation, we'll see the seven bowls of God's wrath. So there's these cycles of seven. And uh, today, we're looking at the seventh seal of the seven seals. And you see that there in verse 1 of the passage I just read. When the land opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. I'd like to focus today on that theme of silence. Uh, what do you imagine the experience of silence in heaven being like? When things are silent, there's a deep. When things are silent, there's a deep sense of expectation. And actually, there's a thing that I often do with my family and my wife hates when um, I'll say to them, "Hey, I have something really important to tell you all." And everyone's like, "Well, what is it?" I just love to wait in silence. Let the expectation build until they're like, "Spit it out! What is it? Tell tell us what the important news is." I love it's because. Silence creates attention and focus and, and expectancy that something is going to happen. And uh, so today, uh, we're going to think about the importance of silence. And as we look at this passage, I want to point out three things about why silence is important for us in our spiritual lives. This is the three things. That silence makes space for listening. Silence makes space for prayer. And silence makes space for the Holy Spirit. Silence makes space in our lives for three things, for listening, for prayer, and for the Holy Spirit. And so why is silence important? Three reasons from Revelation chapter 8 that we're going to look at together. So first, silence makes space for listening. Now, if you've been with us uh, the past few weeks, the passages we've been studying, I think you could describe as chaotic. Uh, you know, we read about the four horsemen of the apocalypse that are going out into the earth, and they're bringing division and famine and death. And there's martyrs that are crying out before the altar, Lord, how long are we going to be suffering? And so maybe if you've been here the past few weeks, the presence of silence in this passage might feel like a relief, like, okay. Silence, good. And, you know, especially as we're finishing the seven seals and then we're going to start the seven trumpets of more tribulation next week, there's a sense of respite in uh, these verses. But um, there's some debate about whether what's being talked about in Revelation 8 is an absolute silence in heaven. Uh, up to this point, what's been the main sound that we've been hearing 
in heaven. Well, if you read through the passages, there's all these angels that are around the throne, and they're either saying certain things, you know, they make these declarations about who God is, or they're singing this new song about what Jesus has been doing in the world. And so, for example, last week we read about them saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. But now all these angels have gone silent. But that doesn't mean that there's absolute silence in heaven. It just means that those who were making noise in heaven have stopped speaking or singing and are now listening. And uh, in this passage, there are these seven angels who are about to blow seven trumpets. So is it possible that, uh, that everyone is being in silent in heaven so that they can listen to what God is going to declare in these seven trumpets? And actually, when you look at silence at other places in the Bible, that's what silence is for. Silence is for listening. So, for example, in Habakkuk 2, it says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence. Before him. Or in Zephaniah, it's put this way Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. So God's people are supposed to, the whole earth is supposed to be silent, to shut their mouths so that God can speak and listen to what he says as he declares the truth to us. So, so uh, silence makes space for, for listening. And actually, if you read the book of Acts, there's a scene where uh, Paul and Barnabas are in Jerusalem, and they're telling about all their missionary journeys and all the things that God is doing in the world. And it says in Acts 15, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Silence is to make space to listen. Of course, we do that every Sunday here when we come into worship. In worship, we have two places where we are totally silent as a church. When we're confessing our sins before the Lord and when we're preparing our hearts to, to commune, uh, to come to the Lord's table. But um, right now, you are being silent. Uh, you're, you don't get to talk. Uh, you're being silent to make space for God's word to speak to you. And I want to say that what you are doing right now is an act of humility and wisdom. Uh, it's something so rare in our culture to say, I am willing to not speak right now. I don't get to voice my opinions or ask questions or object to things I disagree with. I'm just going to listen to God's word and receive it into my body and soul. That's something our culture deeply resists doing. And silence is what you do when you're dead. And so uh, listening, just being silent, listening to God is how we die to ourselves. You know, the Bible says we all have to die to ourselves. And being silent is a way, it's time, I need to be dead so that God can breathe his new life into me. And the book of Proverbs and the book of James both tell us that the wise are slow to speak and quick to listen. And so that one question for us from this passage is, when is there silence in our lives? And being here, there's silence. God creates silence in your life when you come here. Are there other times where there are silence in your life? Does your heart and mind calm down enough to be able to listen to God? And I don't mean calming down enough so I can listen to my own heart and what my own heart is going to tell me. The Bible tells us that the heart of man is deceptive. But to listen, read God's word, to listen to what God's word has to say to us. And what happens to us when, there's, when we're finally silent? 
Um, you know, I've had many people say to me over the years, I, I don't like being alone. I don't like being in silence. Uh, and that's why many people, there's a television on or there's music playing or they're talking all the time because once you're silent, you have to face what's happening in your inner, inner life, your thoughts and your heart that are stirring. And, you know, and for some of us, the only time when we're actually silent is when we go to bed. Everyone else is quiet and we have to be silent. And often we can't sleep because there's so much. I know this happens to me. I'll be up in the middle of the night and things that are stirring in my head. And these are the very things that God wants to deal with in our life are the things that are running through our minds when we're finally silent. That's when he wants to speak to us. Silence makes space for us to listen. Now in our culture, we usually think of being silent in our lives with respect to uh, mindfulness. Uh, mindfulness means becoming aware of our own body and emotions in the present moment and almost like observing our bodies and emotions like in an objective kind of non-judgmental sense. And I think actually there's medical research that has said mindfulness can be helpful for dealing with anxiety and things like that. And I think that can be useful for Christians as long as it's not replacing what prayer and worship are. They're different things. Mindfulness and prayer and worship or reading God's word are different things. Uh, it's, uh, and mindfulness is different from casting our anxieties on the Lord. Um, and so in this passage, we see on the, on the one hand that silence uh, makes space for us to listen, but the second thing that we see in this passage is that silence also makes space for us to pray, to speak to God, to cast our anxieties on him, to tell them to him. And uh, we will not be people of prayer if there's no place for silence in our lives. And I know my life is busy and active. I have family and, and the church life, and there's so, much, so many things that are happening. And even in this passage, you know, it mentions that there was a half hour of silence in heaven. And I'm curious, when you read that, is that a long time or a little bit amount of time? You know, when you, I, I don't know. Is a, is a half hour of silence a long time? You know, there's a lot of, there have been like monastic traditions that would have, you know, silent, where you've got to be silent for a day, or you're going to be silent for a week, or even silent for a month and things like that, where you have to be silent. I've always read this and thought half hour seemed like a long time. <laughs> like, you know, no one's talking, and they're just waiting, and, you know, heaven seems so important. There's so much activity happening there. But what happens when you have a half hour of silence for prayer? Well, most of us would say my mind starts wandering to all these kinds of things that are, I'm anxious about and I'm worried about in my life. My mind goes to all these things, and that's my biggest distraction in prayer. But I'll tell you, almost every book that you read on prayer about the spiritual life, like, you know, kind of uh, spiritual saints throughout history have always said that if, when your mind wanders in prayer, it is the Lord leading you to the things that he wants you to talk to him about. Those things that your mind are wandering to are the real burdens and anxieties that he wants you to say to him. It's actually not a distraction in prayer. It's actually leading you to the things that he wants you to share your heart with him. He wants us to talk about those things. And I am amazed, after all these years as a Christian, how that is not instinctual for me at all. I mean, how I can spend an hour with my mind turning over and not say one word of, Lord, let me give you what's stirring in my heart. Let me say it to you. And will you be my shepherd? Will you lead me in paths of righteousness? Will you, help me? Will you be my counselor and help me to understand what's happening in my heart? 
And so why don't we love these silent times of prayer and communion with our Father who loves us? Well, um, during this half hour of silence in heaven, it's when we read about the prayers of God's people in, in Revelation. And I think this pa- passage answers the question of why we don't love times of silence. And I want to give two answers for that. Okay, the first answer of why I don't think we love times of silence with our Father is we don't appreciate the depth of what is happening in prayer. We don't appreciate the depth of what is actually happening when we speak to God. And you'll notice in this passage that the Old Testament uh, temple and tabernacle is the imagery that's used. That's, that's a lot of the imagery in the book of Revelation comes from the tabernacle in the Old Testament. You see there in verse 3 where it says, And another angel came and stood at the altar, it's from the tabernacle, uh, with the golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And uh, the, the, smoke, uh, the smoke of the incense with the prayers of uh, the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And so all this language of the altar and the golden uh, censer and the incense, it comes from the Old Testament tabernacle. And the Old Testament tabernacle was basically an earthly replica of heaven. It's like heaven on earth. And that's what, you know, was given to Moses as a pattern of, or a shadow of what heaven is like. So it makes sense that there's all these things that look similar in heaven and on the earth. And if you go back and read about the details of the tabernacle, there were these two altars. There was one altar called the bronze altar, which was outside the tent, and that's where they would kill the animals and sprinkle the blood. And it was at the entrance to the tent, but inside the tent, there were these two rooms. There was the holy place, and then the most holy place, which is where God's throne was. The, the Ark of the Covenant was in the most holy place. And in the, right before the curtain, going into the most holy place, there was the golden uh, altar of incense. And so when we read about the incense of the altar, we are at the most intimate place with God himself. And uh, this altar is identified in this passage with the prayers of God's people. And that happens in other places in the Bible as well. If uh, Psalm 141 says, uh, Psalm 141.2 says this, May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting of my hands as the evening offering. Uh, so, so when I say we don't appreciate the depth of what's happening in prayer, we don't, what I mean is we don't appreciate that our prayers are like this incense. Um, that they really reach the intimate place with God. And, and the reason there was incense in the, in the Old Testament uh, worship was because the incense was to be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You know, they'd offer these sacrifices and they'd be accompanied with this pleasing aroma. It was pleasing to God. And what that tells us is when you and I speak to God about the anxieties that are in our heart, the things that are troubling us, and we say them to him, it is pleasing to him. And why is that? Because God's glad you're stressed out and you have worries and you have troubles and things that is it no, it's not that. It's because He wants connection with your heart. He wants to know you. He wants you to know Him. And He knows that it is in those things that we are going to meet Him most deeply. And it is pleasing to Him when His children speak to Him. I mean, think about you, those of you who are parents. When your children finally come to you and they say, hey, this is what's really going on in my mind and heart. This is something I'm struggling with. Aren't you like, oh, stop what I'm doing? All right. Oh, I want to, wow, you're opening up to me. You know, it's like, this is, what a joy. I want to connect with you. That's what parents want. That is what God wants. And uh, 
And actually, uh, 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 Sean Morton recommended uh, to me a book this week on prayer uh, by David Butts. Who's a, it, it, the book's called uh, Forgotten Power, A Simple Theology for a Praying Church. And, and the author puts it this way. He says, prayer becomes the watermark of ownership and intimacy. It is in prayer that we quit, speak, uh, quit simply talking about Jesus and begin to talk to him. That is such a simple phrase, but it's so profound. We stop talking about Jesus and we start talking to him. He wants to know us and, and to, for us to know him. And the incense of this passage is about the intimacy of prayer with God with, between his saints and his people. And so why don't we have times of silent communion with our Father? I think the first thing is we don't appreciate what's actually happening in prayer, how close we are coming to God when we speak to him. Okay, but the second thing is that I think we don't appreciate the power of prayer either. The power, and uh, you see the mention of power in this passage, verse 5, where it says, Then uh, the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and filled it, uh, filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now this verse, uh, if you've read the Old Testament, will bring you back to the book of Exodus, Book of Exodus, uh, God gave the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, there was lightning and thunder and fire. And these were all a display of God's authority and power and majesty. And uh, here in this passage is as a response to the prayers of the saints, God's power and majesty is being thrown down onto the earth. It's becoming present in the earth. It's beginning to change the world. And uh, I think a takeaway from this is that one of the main ways that God works in the world is through the prayers of his people. Now, I'm a doer, and like this is not natural for me, but why would God want the main way that he works in the world be through our prayers? Well, first of all, it means it's going to be about his glory, because we just asked him and he did it, and so he gets the glory for it, not us. But I think the second thing is it shows us that he loves us, that he's there, he's present, he wants a relationship with us. And so if the main way he works is by us asking him, it draws us close to who he is. And I'll tell you, this has not necessarily been a strong point for our church. Um, many people in our church uh, pray individually and have prayed for our church. And I know as a pastor, I, we would, I can't even imagine having a ministry without prayer. I mean, it's feel so dependent on God giving things that we need and, and doing far more than we could ever ask or think. But if you look at the way we organize our ministries, um, where there are all kinds of ministries where we organize people. You know, on Sunday morning, we have all kinds of volunteers that are doing hospitality or doing music or, or serving in the children's ministry. We, we organize people into discipleship groups and into home groups. We've we organized the school using the, the gifts of, of God's people or to serve other people. You know, we have things like meal trains. When someone has a, has a, a baby or, or something happens in their life. And uh, all of these things give us an indication of how we believe that God works. He works by organizing the gifts of the people to go do things. But we haven't organized people to pray. That's probably an indication of us not appreciating the power that prayer has, that this is how God works in the world. And actually, I, I should say our elders had a, a, 
wrote a strategic plan for our church back in the fall, and there were eight focus areas of where we feel like we need to grow as a church. The number one of those focus areas is we need an emphasis in prayer we, that needs to grow and change in our church. And uh, Sean Morton, is a, he's an elder in training, um, uh, working with us. He's been inf- involved in prayer ministries around the county, and he's starting to pray to organize some people and organize a team that would say this, this needs to become more central to what we're doing. And so uh, we need to prepare our hearts as a congregation. I need to be prepared to learn from people who, who pray and give their lives to prayer. But what this passage teaches us is not only that silence makes space for listening, for hearing God's word, but silence also makes space for prayer. And uh, we don't pray because we don't appreciate what's actually happening in prayer, the intimacy that we actually experience with God, and we don't appreciate the power of prayer, that this is the main way that God works through his people in the world, is by answering their prayers. Now, one of the things about prayer, and maybe why we don't appreciate its power, is because we're so bad at it. And, you know, we listen to our own prayers, and they're kind of, I, you know, I started a sentence, and then I didn't finish it because I started thinking about something. And you think, how could these prayers, that I, they're not spiritually eloquent, how could those be the things that change the world? And, uh, and, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that prayer is difficult for us. Jesus says that we are poor in spirit. We come to him poor in spirit. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that. Of course, we have spiritual poverty, and that's what we're praying out of. So we, should, we shouldn't be surprised that our prayers are weak. Um, and that's what, why a third thing uh, that I want to point out from this passage is not only that silence makes space for listening and silence makes, silence makes space for prayer, but the third thing is that silence makes space for the Holy Spirit. Silence makes space for the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is deeply tied. He is deeply tied to both listening to God and speaking to God in prayer, both of those things. And the reason for that is because that's how you have a relationship with God, is you listen to him, you listen to his word, and then you speak back to him the things that are in your heart. That's what it means. And the Holy Spirit, you know, in the Bible, he's called, uh, it talks about um, uh, uh, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who creates fellowship. He creates relationship between people and God, between people and each other. He's even the one who is the love between the Father and the Son in the Trinity himself. He is the relationship creator. And so if we're going to be close with God, we need the Holy Spirit to be working in our lives. And what he does is he enables the poor in spirit believers, like us, to have a relationship with the living God. And you see a mention in this passage in verse 3 of another angel, where it says in verse 3, and another angel came and stood at the altar. And what does this angel do? It says in verse 3, And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So this other angel who offers incense, and it's interesting, the incense is not the prayers of the people. The incense is offered alongside with the prayers of the people. It's like mingled in with the prayers of the people. And uh, one commentator um, has noted that this phrase, another angel, in other places in Revelation refers to the Holy Spirit. And you might wonder, how. so it's the Holy Spirit. 
who mingles incense with our prayers to make our prayers pleasing to God. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And so it's not up to us to manufacture these perfect prayers. It's up to the power of God. And you might wonder, well, how does the Holy Spirit come into a person's life? Well, it's interesting that the two ways that the Bible says the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life is through listening and praying. Through listening and praying in silence. And, and uh, and let me make this clear. You know, some of you might think that the way that the Holy Spirit, Spirit speaks to you is by being quiet, and then whatever pops into your head is the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And I find that to be largely untrue, that the thoughts that are popping into my head are the Holy Spirit. Often the thoughts that are popping into my head are my own flesh, my own ambitions, my own, my own self-defensiveness. And... Uh, And the Bible tells us that the heart is deceptive above all things. But what Galatians says is that people receive the Spirit when they hear the gospel. And they believe in the gospel. So when people hear, Jesus has chosen you. Jesus has shed his blood to cover all of your sins. So you no longer need to be ashamed to appear before God. He has called you to himself. You've been adopted into God's family. And Jesus has conquered death. You have no fear of even dying. He is granting you eternal life to be with him forever and to have a relationship with him. When you hear about this love and you say, I believe it, the Holy Spirit becomes active in your life and in your heart. The Holy Spirit is poured into who you are. The Holy Spirit comes through listening to the gospel. That's what the Bible says. And so you receive the Spirit by listening, not to your own heart, but to the gospel. But the second answer to how you receive the Holy Spirit is simply by asking. And this is one of of my favorite uh, parables that Jesus says. He says, you know, if if earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to their children, and he basically uses the example of, let's say a little child comes and asks their father, can I have some cereal for breakfast? He says, bread. Can I have some cereal for breakfast? I'm hungry. And the father makes some cereal and gives them food. It's very simple because the father gives good gifts to his children. He says that's what he wants it to be like for us. Come to our father and, and, and he says if earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will your father in heaven give, give good gifts to his children who ask him for the Holy Spirit? He says simply ask for the Holy Spirit. How often do we ask God for the Holy Spirit? When was the last time you asked God for the Holy Spirit. And if you ask your father, Father, I want your spirit to live in me, to give me a mind that trusts in you and loves your word. You give me a heart that loves other people and knows how to serve and care for them. This is really what I want. Would you grant that to me? What do you think your father's going to do when you, if you ask for that? <laughs> of course he wants to give that to you. If there's anything the father wants to give to you is his spirit. And so we see... How simple this is. To receive the Holy Spirit into your life, you don't need to stir up your emotions. You don't need to prove your devotion to God. You don't need a depth of theological understanding. You just need to hear about the love of Christ and believe it. And simply, like a child, ask your father for his spirit. And what's so amazing is that even though that's how you receive the Spirit, is by believing and by asking, it turns out both of those things are actually enabled by the Holy Spirit. So before you even do those things, if you believe, you say, well, I have to believe to receive the Holy Spirit. But the only way you can believe is if the Holy Spirit was already working in your life. 
He didn't wait for you to believe. He just started working and gave you faith. Or if you simply ask for the Holy, for the Holy Spirit. It's not just that you got the Holy Spirit because you asked. You asked because the Holy Spirit was already working in you. He comes to us first. This is the amazing grace of God. And so in Revelation, we read about silence in heaven. And as we read it, we say, Lord, we long for silence in the earth, even for a half hour. Where the, minds, the mouths of your people would be stopped. And we would listen. And we would pray. And our prayers would be a pleasing aroma to you. And that we would know your Holy Spirit and his power at work in the world. That we might die to ourselves, that we might have intimacy with our Father, and that we might be changed by his power. Lord, grant us these things, we pray. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, What amazing thoughts that words like these that I speak now, words that come from the hearts of my brothers and sisters here are so pleasing to you that they give you pleasure. You desire uh, for us to make known to you what's in our mind and what's in our hearts and that we could draw near to you. And, and Lord, uh, we are here as we read your word, realizing that this is an area where we need to grow. Um, that you work in the world through your people praying. That you might be glorified, you might receive the glory and not us. That, uh, that you would show us that we have this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Train us in this, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.